Okay, let's pray. God, thank you again for this chance to study together, uh, to reflect upon a topic that is important, but that is still in process in my own mind of fully understanding it. And so I pray that you would guide us in this conversation uh, as we address just some uh, principles and thoughts on the topic of worship in a more abstract form. I pray that you would bless us, that it would make sense, it would be linear, and uh, that we would hear your voice clearly speaking to us. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so go to Revelation chapter 4. So we're dealing with the topic of worship. Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to talk about worship and some of the things we see about it in Scripture. Revelation chapter 4. And verse 11, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, um, some interesting things here, some parallels in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. So in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, it says that you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. And then it says, why? For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Okay, so there's a statement that you are worthy, and one of the things we're talking about is you are worthy of worship, and then it says why. It's kind of similar to our Sabbath presentation, if you remember, that one of the markers of remembrance, uh, what was the word I used? It, it was a memorial of creation, right? It's alluded to again here, you are worthy. So God is worthy of worship to receive glory and honor and power for because he created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So it was God's will for you to exist, right? It's another thing that we see here. One of the reasons why we worship is because we're acknowledging the reality that God wanted me to exist. It's a blessing to be here and to be wanted. Does that make sense? So we see that in Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 5, uh, going to verse 9, uh, it speaks of the four living creatures. And um, so they sang a new song saying, You are worthy. Uh, he had taken the scroll of uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. These are the people talking here. And they sang a new song saying, verse 9, You are worthy, again, to take the scroll and to open its seals. And why does it say he's worthy? For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And so we see the same kind of principle or the same kind of theme brought forth that he is worthy of worship. And now it says because you were slain on our behalf, because you have redeemed us, right? Speaking of the you know, benefits that we receive from uh, redemption. And so we're talking about worship. This is why God deserves to be worshiped, why it's the least that we can do for him. It's us returning to him a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness that he created us and redeemed us, as we talked about in Ezekiel 20 verse 12, that he's even in the process of transforming us while we wait, right? Fitting us for heaven. And so the, like this is like the foundational level of why it is that God is worthy of worship, because of who he is and what he's done, right? We worship him because of who he is and what he's done, okay? And so worship is a response to a, re a revelation of who God is, right? You don't know who he is and enter into true worship until you come to know him for yourself. So like true worship is going to be birthed out of our own exploration and discovery of who God is, right? It doesn't just magically happen like, oh, he's God, I should probably worship him. If we would do it that way, many times it'd be the equivalent of people worshiping idols. Like, ah, I should just show f some form of reverence for the fact that this is benefiting me in some form or fashion, right? Like I probably owe them that. But true worship is birthed out of a true discovery and experience of who God is and what He does. Uh, that means getting into the Word in prayer and learning to praise Him and claim His promises, as was mentioned during our worship. Uh, there are many texts that talk about knowing Him, right? Not just knowing about Him, but knowing Him. Um, to know Him, right? John chapter 17, and verse 3, that this is eternal life, to know God, right? To know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent and that Peter talks about this. I believe it's in 1 Peter chapter 1. We can turn there real quick. Let's see if I can find this easily. Let's try 2 Peter 1. 
will. Yeah, here we go. Second Peter chapter one, verse two. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We talked about this in the uh, fear God and give glory to Him for the hour's judgment has come. We talked about that in that section, that God literally has provided everything needed for you, right, to find yourself in heaven. So He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then it says, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, a true knowledge of God, an experiential knowledge of God, and the promises it has given us, we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Right? So we have before us the privilege, not just of learning about, but experientially knowing the God of the universe. And when this happens in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, this is where true, birth, true worship is birthed, right? It comes from that exploration and from that journey. And true worship then is a giving of the heart to God and not just an emotional response to the things around you, right? This can be one of the dangers that happens in like false revivals or in certain worship services that it's so feeling driven, it's not actually experiential knowledge driven. Does that make sense? Right? There isn't this kind of urge and push to dig deeply into the Word and know Him for yourself intimately. It's to feel Him, if you will. Right? And true worship is not feelings. True worship is the overflow of an experience with God in your love for Him. Does that make sense? Like worship is, is this thing that wells up from within the heart and soul of gratitude with the revelation of who He is, not just how you feel when you sing about Him. Does that make sense? And so sometimes I can get confused, and I'm not saying that our music shouldn't be stirring and beautiful and well-played. It should be, right? But our gratitude is for who He is and what He does, not how I feel in this moment when someone plays that song that way that stirs me. Does that make sense? Because um, sometimes we kind of bypass the whole genuine experience with God, and we're really just addicted to the emotions we feel when we hear music. And we think that that's worship. But worship is about God, not how you feel. Does that make sense? Your feelings are birthed out of your experience with God, which leads to true worship. Not when this music's played, I feel good, this is worship. Okay? Which is, yeah, anyway, it's just kind of a fine line that I think we need to be a little more cognizant of uh, in that sense. I remember I was, in a, I was at an event a few years ago. I won't say where it was, but I was at this event. It was a group for young people. There were multiple speakers there. And I spoke, I think I was the main speaker at that event, and someone else spoke towards the end of the event. It's kind of like a closing charge of sorts. They had testimonies on that day. And they had testimonies of people who were not Adventist and became Adventist. They had the testimony of somebody who grew up Adventist and stayed Adventist, which is a testimony. Some people think, I don't have a testimony. I was just born in the church, and I'm just here. Well, you're not just here. You could have left. There's a testimony in the fact that you found something desirable that was here, and you made it your own, right? You owned your faith. That's a blessing. That's a massive testimony. And then someone told the testimony of leaving and coming back, and they told the story. I will never forget this. This is one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had of seeing the Spirit of God fall in a congregation. So this person said, don't record this. This is just for you and for me. Okay, so don't record this. On video, on audio, they were like, this is just, this is just family talk. So they turn off the cameras, and this guy goes in on the grind of being in ministry. He works with multiple churches. He uh, was running a training program kind of like this and training young people, and he's seen some stuff in his time in ministry. He's talking about how ministry's hard, like it can be a really lonely place, and it can be difficult that we can find ourselves kind of longing for this, or having this idol of longing for people to be there for us. Um, and he, he said he prayed one of the worst prayers of his life. He asked God to show him who his real friends were. And what he began to experience was the crippling loneliness of ministering and not having people with you. And he, so that God could show that he's our only true friend. 
And as he's going through this, you know, they got a call from a church member like, hey, there's this lady who's demon possessed. Will you come pray for her? But the problem is he was in a season in life that can happen, unfortunately, in ministry that you kind of get in the grind, you get lost in the soup, and you're just kind of like riding on your talents. You're not really like growing yourself. You're just kind of coasting through. And when you do this for a while and become proficient, that can be a danger that you can roll out of bed and preach a sermon that makes people cry, but you're not really grinding with Jesus like you used to, right? To really prepare and set yourself up to succeed. That can happen when you get so overwhelmed with the stresses of, of life. Like It's much easier to just do what I've been doing and not try to pray over it, and know my audience, and get ready for it, and just do it, right? Just go through the motions. So he was kind of in that type of season. He was feeling kind of dry, and he just knew he wasn't in a good place. And the whole drive to this house He's just like, he's, he's not doing good because he knows I'm not in a good place. And this lady is filled with demons. Like, this is not, this is not a good situation. And I mean, he has trust in God, but just he knows he's not in the right frame of mind to be doing this right now. Maybe you've been there in other forms of ministry where like you messed up or something else has gone on. And you just know, like, I'm not in the headspace to be doing this right now. Like, I really would prefer not to. But he had to. So he goes and he prays in the fear of God for this lady, and by the grace of God, she's delivered. But he ugly cries the entire ride home because he knew that he did not deserve that. He's been in situations where he'll tell one of the churches he works with, he tells the elder, hey, I can't be there this week uh, for prayer meetings. I have to be at one of the other churches I'm working with. And that same elder asks all the people, how come so-and-so, this minister, isn't here? even though that same minister told him, I'm not coming, and you know that. He was stirring dissension among the camps, stirring the pot, making the people think that the pastor or this guy doesn't care about them. And he says, there's stuff I've seen in ministry I can't tell anybody except my wife. And then there's things I can't even tell my wife because I don't want her to worry for me. He's talking about the grind of ministry. And I'm not saying this to discourage you from ministry, but if you assume that it's all just like cute kittens and rainbows, y'all are tripping. Like, it's, it can be hard and ugly at times. And so he made this profound statement. He says, um, he was talking about Abraham and his son Isaac, and we'll talk about this later uh, on the topic of, a, of the class on singleness, I think. But he was talking about Abraham and Isaac and how he, he said that when God asks you to give up the thing that you want the most, be sure that you can call that sacrifice worship. Because Abraham tells his servants, I and the lad go yonder to worship. Can you imagine laying down the thing that is of the most importance to you, the thing you've been waiting for for 20 years, and God has had the audacity to ask for? Would you just give it begrudgingly, right, because you have to? Or could you truly give of yourself and what matters the most to you? Could you actually give of yourself in that way at all, first of all? And second of all, could you really consider that an act of worship? That you giving what matters the most, because from everything I've received, it came from God, and to God it can return if that's what He deems necessary. Could you really do that? So he said that make sure that when you give that thing that matters the most to God, that you can call that worship. But then he also said, and make sure you come back. Because it's very easy when God goes for the jugular and asks for those things that you really don't want to give, it's easy to not come back. But Abraham tells his servants, I and the lad are going yonder to worship and we will return to you. Could you give if God were to ask, and could you consider it worship, and would you be willing to come back? Because this is part of what being a worshiper of Jesus looks like, that anything is available to Him, that there's nothing in your life that is not available to Him, because He is the chiefest among 10,000, right? He is the greatest desire of your heart. And... He made this statement in that presentation that I am struggling to remember right now, which is so odd because I've said this a thousand times. Um, I 
I don't know. I guess we'll have to come back to it later. But he was basically implying this idea that, no, I, I do remember now. Thank you. He said, be willing to love everything else less. And that's difficult for us because like, we're like, hey, yeah, I love you. And like, I'm committed to you, but like, I've got stuff that like, you have no business touching or asking from me. We can do this, can't we? And part of true biblical worship is making oneself fully exposed and available to God. That you're holding nothing back from Him. And if He were to ask for the thing that matters the most to you, if He were to ask the thing that your identity is hanging upon, and it shouldn't be hanging upon that in the first place, could you genuinely respond? Would you be willing to love everything else less? To fully consecrate and commit yourself to Him? That's the question, and I think it's really helpful for me as I'm kind of working through this process of trying to wrap my mind around what God intends and what He means by worship. I think this is part of it. It's a giving of oneself fully and completely to God, right? Not just feelings of gratitude that you feel are due and necessary, but it's actually a giving of oneself, as Ellen White would say, a living sacrifice, giving of yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Um, so it's very interesting that like even the things of nature worship by giving God their fullest potential to be what they were meant to be, right? Like trees grow and produce fruit for the glory of God. Grass grows to the consternation of landowners who have to mow it, but like Everything in creation does what it was made to do, and in doing so, it worships God. It takes what God gave it, and it gives it back to Him for His glory. Which I think is amazing. Like, when you look at any form of fruit, there's a blossom first. There's this beautiful flower that happens, and then comes the fruit. Like, it's just amazing when you see everything living up to its full potential and shining for the glory of God. And the amazing thing is, even after the fall, there are things that happen that are beautiful and enrapturing that are even bright, bringing glory to God. Like the color change here in the Northeast. Like, it's gorgeous to see it, especially if you get up in the colder places like Vermont and Maine and so forth, and New Hampshire and some parts of Massachusetts where it's just, it's such a pretty and beautiful display. And the thing is, like, all they know to do is to give everything they have for the glory of God and to just live up to the potential that they have. Well, the same is true for you and me. When we choose to fully channel the potential that God has given us and grow and shine forth, that itself is an act of worship, right? You even hear the trees sing, like when the wind blows through the trees and everything else, right? They worship even in hardship, right? You hear the whistling and the beautiful sounds through the trees. And, um, you know, the trees sing when buffeted by the wind, even they worship in hardship. So why do you think birds sing all the time? They're worshiping, right? Like they're literally doing what they were made to do. And that's all they know to do, right? They bring forth their beauty and they let it shine for him. And you can worship God by taking care of your body, right? By actually taking care of the temple that God has given you, by eating properly, by exercising. You're not doing this as like, you know, this means of appeasing an angry God, or like it's this legalistic thing that God requires of me, but it's a form of gratitude, right? Like, I remember whenever I was driving a vehicle that was not really reliable, and it's all I had, I was just hoping I could get where I could go. But when someone gave me a vehicle when I was Bible working, it was not a vehicle that I would have signed up for, right? Like, it wasn't what I would have wanted for myself, but it was a reliable vehicle that got me where I needed to go, and I knew to be grateful for that. And the first time I drove that car, and there was no rumble in the tires, and by know what I'm talking about, you got a car, you're just kind of getting by, there was no rumble in the tires, there was nothing else, I cried and worshipped in that moment. Because I had gone through such a grind to that point, to just be able to have something that could function, to have something that functioned efficiently and smoothly and fuel efficiently, those tears were a moment of worship for me, to just thank God that I had something that I did not have the privilege of having for many years of my life. Right? To take time to actually express oneself in genuine gratitude and giving of oneself is an act of worship. And so imagine when you can delight in caring for your own body, 
many of us are living in a headspace and lifestyle of self-sabotage. We're eating garbage, we're not exercising, we don't try to sleep at all at night, we just do all these things to sabotage our own health instead of taking the opportunity to realize that God gave me this body as a gift, right? That I have a privilege to function as I can and as I do right now is a blessing. And the more that I do to care for the body I'm given, the more I can do for God, right? Because He gave me this body not just to have it, but to use it for His glory, And the better I care for it, the better worship I can render to Him through its use. Does that make sense? I think it's one of the reasons for the health message was to restore true worship to humanity, to help us to understand. Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of God? 1 Corinthians 3.16, that the Spirit of God dwells within you. Well, God was very, you know, considerate of the care of the temple, and the temple was used for worship, right? And so, like, for me, if I can have like a bowl of just fresh fruit of berries and mangoes and bananas and, and stuff like that, like that itself, I get so excited over how healthy and delicious this is that literally it feels like an act of worship for me. I'm not worshiping the fruit. I'm worshiping God for delicious food that makes me feel good and makes me healthy. I had a moment of worship in Trader Joe's a few weeks ago during the Blitz yes. that like I was in a place where I could access lots of healthy, good food cost-effectively, and I nearly started crying in Trader Joe's. And it's not because I have an emotional disorder. Like, I was just so thankful. Because when, you, when you're a health-conscious person, it's hard to find healthy options at Walmart. Like, you find stuff, but to find, like, genuine quality, organic, le- legit, tasty, healthy options, right? Whole Foods cost a gazillion dollars, and sometimes their selection isn't that great. But like Trader Joe's had all of these things that I liked all in one place, and I was just so overwhelmed that I could take care of my body cost-effectively and buy it all right now that I worshipped in the aisle where they had canned jackfruit in Trader Joe's and Brazil nuts, raw Brazil nuts. I've always said that Trader Joe's is overrated, but now it's part of the Three Angels message. Trader Joe's is not overrated. I've never lived in a place where there was a Trader Joe's where I could get access to healthy, simple food. Like, it's a grind, man, if you don't have that privilege. I lived in Chattanooga. They didn't have Trader Joe's. I was like, Chattanooga is nearly perfect. Why do you not have a... It's like a hipster town. How could you not have Trader Joe's? They do now, after I leave. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is an example of what self-worship looks like. In Daniel chapter 4, is this not great Babylon which I have built, right? Um, So everything we do and are is because of what God does, and we have no right to claim it. So when we boast of our abilities or we boast of our skills, right, we're engaging in a form of false worship because the real form of worship would be to use my gifts for the glory of God and seek no attention, to seek no affirmation, to seek no compliments, to just shine. That's what the birds and the trees do. They're not saying, oh, I wonder if somebody saw me make that killer bloom on my left branch. Like, they don't think that way. Birds don't sing and think, man, I hope somebody saw that. And is, well, I mean, I guess the, the males too, you know, like, <laughs> but hey, they're just looking for a mate. They're, even that is doing it for the glory of God because they're continuing their lineage. Um, they're just singing to get a mate. But like, the point is like, they're not doing it with nefarious reasons. Like, I don't even know if you have some of these thought processes as a you know, an an animal. But um, anyway, the point is that like you living up to your full potential is an act of worship either way. It could be an act of false worship if you're trying to get people notice, right, and to pander towards you, or it can be an act of true worship by just doing it because it's what God made you for, right, as opposed to I'm doing this hoping somebody saw it, right, or noticed. I had one of these moments. We can have these like really ridiculous moments in our experience this guy, so there was this like big, uh, uh, what do they call those? Not Land Cruiser, they're called, um, you know, the fancy SUV, uh, not Land Cruiser, they're called, um, come on, Bogdan, help me out. Huh? No, not the FJ Cruisers. I mean, like, it's, it's a brand. There's the name of a brand. It's got like the circle with the green thing in it. Land Rover, yeah. It's like super nice Land Rovers in the front yard of my buddy's house that he rents in Loma Linda. And... Um, it's sitting there, and, and I have to go preach at the university that night. It's like, hey, if you want, um, 
in my mind, what I heard him say was, if you want to take the Land Rover, you can take it. And I was like, really? And I was like, no, 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 I'll just walk instead. And I texted one of my buddies like, man, I just had a chance to drive a Land Rover. But I said, no, I hope Jesus was looking like, you know, like I could have something and like do something super special. Be like, no, 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 I'm just going to choose to not do that. I'm just going to walk. And then lo and behold, I find out later that what he had was like a 1993 Toyota Land Cruiser with like an oil leak. And the, the, uh, the other thing, the Land Rover that was in the front of the house, his was in the back of the house. The Land Rover in the front of the house was like some girl from Saudi Arabia that was in med school. <laughs> it wasn't even something I was going to drive. But you just had these moments. You think, was someone impressed when I made a good decision? Like, I hope Jesus saw it when I said no to this. Like, no, like that's not, that's not real worship. That's not real obedience. It's just you being ridiculous. Um, all right. We also worship God when we love one another, when we choose to place a higher esteem upon another person, right? We can worship God in doing that and learning to give and live for another, right? That's us living up to the potential and the goal and the ideal that God has for us. Um, it talks about in the book of Revelation that they were given a new name, right? Being given a new name is a new experience and a new character as a result of that experience. No one else can know it because it's only your experience. And uh, so the song of Moses and the Lamb is our story of redemption. And that song pleases God the most because we're reciprocating the love that he has already showed to us. The 144,000 in Revelation 14 sing a song that no one else can sing because they have an experience that no one else can have. Worship is the result of an experience. And this leads to us following the Lamb wherever he goes. Right? So our experience of singing a song that no one else can sing is because you have an experience that no one else has had. Right? The 144,000 have an experience of redemption that the angels can't fully understand. Now, Signs of the Times, Signs of the Times December 30, 1889, there's a section called What Was Secured by the Death of Christ that is amazing. Oh, my days, it's good. But... One of the statements that Ellen White makes is that God, the, even the angels were made more secure by the death of Christ and that it guards them from apostasy. But they have not experienced falling and being redeemed in the way that we have, right? So we have an experience and the worship that we give in heaven as the redeemed will be different to some degree than the worship that's rendered even by the angels and the unfallen worlds because it's birthed out of our experience right? You worship based upon your experience. So ours will be different. I'm not saying it's better or worse. My point is worship is birthed through the experience and the story that God has given you. Does that make sense? Right? The song of Moses and the Lamb that I was in this trial and God delivered me and you worship him for that specific provision and whatever else happens in your life. Yes? Uh, just like with the hymn, Holy, Holy, it's what the angels sing. Uh, that's literally its point. Um, the chorus goes, holy, holy is what the angels sing, and I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I tell, um, yeah. When, when, well, yeah, but when I sing redemption story, they'll fold their wings, friend, for angels never felt the joys that our salvation brings. Right. And this is, this is part of what we know, and that, that's drawn from this premise of Revelation, right? It's absolutely right. Yes? Signs of the Times, December 30, 1889. It's called What Was Secured by the Death of Christ. 1889. It's a relevant year, massive year full of revivals. So the first angel's message is the preaching of the everlasting gospel to the world. And this is what leads people to have an experience with God, right? We've already seen that. You guys have had an experience with God this week from what you're learning, right? Your worship experience will change based upon what you know and what you go through in life and what you come to know about God and who he is and what he's done. So it's very interesting that the, the everlasting gospel is given, or actually I should just stick to my notes because I think it says this, that this is what leads people to have an experience with God. And the response to this is a call to worship and then a warning against false worship in the end result. And so you receive the mark of the beast by what you do. What you do is in itself an act of worship and it reveals who we worship. So in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12, here they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, true obedience is an act of worship. It's birthed from a genuine experience and is powered by the God of that experience. Isn't it amazing that God even helps you worship Him? 
It says that in Romans 8, right? Like we don't even know how to pray as we ought, but that God will help us, right? The Spirit will help us uh, with, with words that we can't even fully come, come to pass. And this is what I love, that you can worship God without even knowing what to say. You ever been there? Like you're just so overwhelmed with emotions that you can't really find words fail me, right? Uh, in those moments, it's still worship, whether you know what to say or not, because your heart is giving unto God what you have, right? Um, so the Spirit of God seals people who enter into a true experience, that's in Ephesians 1 and Romans 8, and empowers our worship and even our prayers, as we said in Romans 8. So God isn't just who we worship. He also enables us in our how to worship, right? Which I think is so, so cool. So that you're engaging in this mutual symbiotic relationship with God through worship as He intends. So the first angel's message, when you preach the everlasting gospel, you're inviting people to worship in response to that experience, right? That call to worship is there. And that's nowhere in the equation of Revelation 13. True worship is not birthed out of what you're forced to do, right? Which is why everyone has to opt in and make a choice to worship. Worship can't be mandated or forced. And so this is why song services can be lame and terrible if I'm not individually taking responsibility for choosing to worship, the entire corporate worship will will suffer because of that. Because I'm not making that decision. Because corporate worship is assembling individuals who are worshiping God. Does that make sense? It's not that we all show up to the same place and we all open our mouths and sing in a form of harmony and then we stop and we move on. That's not worship. That's just noise. True worship is individuals synergizing their individual worship experiences together in a corporate community. Does that make sense? Which means that as you enter a worship service, you should be preparing your heart to worship. Does that make sense? And it also gives a greater responsibility to song leaders because the more clearly and strongly you play, the easier it is for people to follow, and they don't have to think about how does the song go. They can focus on actually worshiping God, right? This is why playing music well and strongly as music leaders is so important because the Bible says that if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, people aren't going to go to war. And so you'll notice a massive difference. If someone walked in this room and blew it up on piano, people will be far more inclined to sing strongly and confidently because they know where to go. But if music is played vaguely and quietly and you don't really know where they're going, it's just kind of like uncertain. No one really sings with the same confidence that they would sing if the music was played strongly and well, which is why it's important and why I would encourage you, we're playing to whatever strengths are in the room. And there may be some years where we don't have a concert pianist. We may not have anyone who can play an instrument some years. But if you as worship leaders pick songs that people know and you help them to succeed by the music that you play, the worship will be better. It's guaranteed. So if you set people up to succeed by picking a song in advance, practicing that song in advance, and preparing beforehand, your confidence will inspire their confidence, and their focus is no longer on, I don't know where he's going, it's on, I can do this much more, I can focus on doing, right? So it's like when you learn anything that's new, it's kind of hard to fully focus on everything else because you're just trying to do it right. That's what happens even in how we sing subconsciously. And so... As worship leaders, take that into account. Am I, am I picking songs that people actually know, or is it just a song that I like that no one knows? Well, it's great that you like that song, but we can't worship with you if we don't know where you're going or how this works. Does that make sense? So if you have a strong musician that can do it, or you have a strong music track that people can follow and it's clear to do what you're doing, then it's easier. But just keep that in mind. How you lead a corporate worship and what your personal preferences are and what to sing should not be the same thing. Because this isn't about you. You're worshiping you if that's what you're doing. You're supposed to be calling the congregation to worship together with you. So you want to set the congregation up to succeed. Does that make sense? So if you need to play the song through strongly and they know where to go and it's easy to follow, that's one thing. But if it's like abstract and I don't know where they're going and I don't even know what pitch they're singing because they're not singing in tune and they're trying to teach you a song, it's a disaster. It doesn't work, right? So being a worship leader is a very serious thing because there's more that's going on here. You're, you're empowering people to worship. You're not just that person that picks some songs for people to maybe sing or not. Does that make sense? 
So there's a responsibility for those who are engaging in worship, and there's a responsibility for those who are leading worship. And when that's done well, it truly and fully glorifies God because you can afford to give of yourself and focus on that and not about what do I do? I don't know what's going on right now. Does that make sense? Do you have a question, Bogdan? No, I have, I have just kind of a testimony on what you're saying. is like 100% we've like, experienced it at Northview. So our pastor, um, he, he's a monster on piano. Oh, of course. Joe's a gangster. We're like singing, 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 and then you just see him like dart off to stage left, get behind the piano, and all of a sudden, it just, all of a sudden, there's like a bunch of extra notes added somewhere in there, and it's that much louder, and guess what happens to the congregation? Exactly what you said, like, it just gets hyped, and everybody's united, turn up for Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. This, this is one of the, and this is why a worship leader shouldn't get upset at people for not singing, because it's probably your fault. Guys, sing! Well, maybe the reason they're not singing is because they have no idea where you're going. Because you don't know where you're going. You just picked a song two seconds ago, and you don't know how to play it on guitar, or piano, or violin, or harmonica, or accordion, or whatever you have. Of course they're not going to follow you. Of course they're not going to sing. Right? So it's, an, it's important to kind of take that responsibility seriously because you're enabling them to succeed, and they're not trying to figure out what you're doing. They're focusing on going the same direction with you. Does that make sense? So, yeah. So play to your strengths when you're leading a worship, right? If you don't know a song, don't pick that song. It's totally fine. So if you just say, what songs do you guys want to sing? Chances are they're going to pick something you don't know. Unless you're like super comfortable in any environment, then, then you can have that. If that's the type of skill set and understanding you have, you will have more flexibility as a worship leader. But if you don't have that skill set, play to your strengths. Because you're the one leading worship this week. Not me, not them. So play to your strengths, and it will be a better experience, for sure. Yeah. All right. So worship is how we do life and can even be the actions that we take. And this is why we can receive the mark of the beast without believing that Sunday is a day of worship, right? If you're seeking to save yourself, you're worshiping Satan. Righteousness by faith is meant to protect us from that fleshly tendency. People will seek to save themselves and in turn worship the beast. And this is why the first angel's message is the everlasting gospel in the appeal to worship the creator, right? And so forth. Um, We can worship God by healing his creation, right? By restoring the beauty that God gave to this world. That can be people and that can be nature itself, right? Even that can be an act of worship. What John was talking about last week, right? Gardening and farming. Like, you're literally, you're literally putting into motion the very things that bring honor and glory to God. When you put seeds in the ground and they shine to their full potential and do what they were made for, right? That itself is an act of worship. Cultivating it, protecting it, ensuring that it can live to its full potential, that can be a form of worship. And imagine if you apply that same thing to people, Pouring your life into somebody so that they can reach their full potential can be an act of worship because you're empowering them to worship. Does that make sense? Which I think is so cool. Uh, Even waiting on God is an act of worship. I don't know about you, but I really don't like waiting. I wish this would be over in certain areas of my life. But there's things that God is doing through that process that can be an act of worship because you're committing yourself into His care, right? There's this form of fully giving of oneself to Him whether he gives you what you want or not, right? So even waiting can be an act of worship. It's an act of trust and rest in his future provision. He'll even rewrite your story to reflect worship when you realize the reason behind your pain and failure afterwards. He did that for Abraham in Romans 4, right? So even our failure to truly understand worship, once we do get it and we surrender that broken part of our story to God, he will rewrite our story as if it was only true worship. Romans 4, 20 and 21, yet, God, uh, yet Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. He worshiped God uh, and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That's not the story of Genesis, right? And there's tension there. Well, the reason why is because Abraham brought his broken chapters to Jesus, and Romans 4, 17 tells us that God calls the things that do not exist as though they did. He can rewrite your story to reflect true worship once we see that later down the road. 
which is why we see David and Abraham's stories rewritten after their deaths. See it with David too. Nature in its beauty calls forth worship. In fact, nature worships God by living up to its potential and being what it was made to be. And we're to do the same, which we already covered, which is why we commune with him in nature, right? That um, worship, uh, I was looking for that quote. I don't think Dwayne sent that to me. I meant to ask him and I didn't get that. But um, this is why Ellen White talks about this in Steps of Christ. We read this on the Sabbath class that in the loveliness of the things of nature, you may learn more of the wisdom of God than the schoolmen know. On the lily's petals, God has written a message for you, written in language that your heart can read and read and uh, read only as it unlearns the lessons of distrust and selfishness and corroding care. Why has God given you the singing birds and the gentle blossoms? But from the overflow of the overflowing love of a father's heart that would brighten and gladden your path of life. All that was needed for existence would have been yours without the flowers and birds. But God was not content to provide what would suffice for mere existence. He has filled the air and sky with glimpses of beauty to tell you of his loving thoughts for you. The beauty of all created things is but a gleam from the shining of his glory. And if he has lavished such infinite skill upon the things of nature for your happiness and joy, can you doubt that he will give you every needed blessing that starts from the Mount of Blessing 96.1? And so Eloi talks about this in the first chapter of Steps to Christ as well, that we can engage in worship through our appreciation of the things of nature that reveal God's love to us. And he put them there just to tell you that he loves you. Every time you see something in nature that makes you happy, God put that there to inspire that response. And our worship in that moment, our appreciation in that moment is telling him that I recognize that and thank you, right? And when you start to recognize this, there are opportunities for worship all throughout the day, not just from 7.45 to 8 a.m. Are you noticing that? Like literally, this can be a process that you can engage in. There are scientific studies that show the benefits of gratitude. That your mental mindset and your overall happiness, when you're living a life of gratitude, or what the Bible referred to as true worship, right, isn't just limited to gratitude, but when you live a lifestyle like that, you're happier, you're literally healthier just by living in that mind space. You make better decisions, you're an easier person to be around, and you're more inclined, right, to be other-centered and other-focused because you're not staring at your problems all the time. You're more in tune with the needs of the world around you, right? So by being in a mindset of worship, there's actually more opportunities for worship. And that can happen all throughout the course of the day. So when man renders to God that which is rightfully his, it's now not good for him to be alone. The next phase is family worship which then turns into corporate worship, uniting our individual experiences of worship to bring greater, greater glory and honor to God. This is why the church exists, not to worship tradition or ourselves, but to compile our own experiences, right? When someone shows up to church and gets upset because they didn't like the songs that were sung, they don't like how the pastor's tie looks, they don't like the fact that someone's sitting in their pew, you're literally coming to church to worship yourself and not God. When you're complaining about everything and what you don't like, you have lost an opportunity to engage in true worship because you've just been worshiping yourself. And that isn't what God is asking for. He's wanting to compile our genuine experiences. And, and so God, uh, once Adam got to this point, um, he brings a help meet comparable to him. When Adam comes to realize and appreciate what it is that he has experienced, he brings someone to worship alongside him. Not to worship him, but to worship alongside him. So when Adam learned how to worship for himself, then God brought him somebody who could worship alongside him, someone comparable to him, someone else who knows how to worship. Having children is an act of worship, and then you teach them how to worship, right? She's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I see that she has the same experience as me. At this stage, we leave our father and mother, and the two of us become one in worship. The Bible clearly shows that God is a blueprint for worship, so our relationship choices matter then, right? Because this is part of that process. It should be done in harmony with that blueprint because worship is the end goal. The world teaches to worship as well, but it's a worship of self and of flesh instead of God, right? And when we get these things confused, it can be 
dangerous. So when you learn to worship alone, then you can begin to worship together. Adam and Eve had that. Sex is meant to be an act of worship, and this is why Baal worship and paganism uses a counterfeit, right? They had temple prostitutes and so forth. In fact, there's a book I need to read. It's by Rob Bell called Sex God that talks about a lot of these types of issues that how we've kind of fused a lot of these things and distorted things. Because it's giving for one another, and this is how we enter into God's way of doing life, right? You live, God lives to give, and we live to give. But pornography in the world teach you to take and not serve, right? Masturbation too. Like it's basically teaching you to live for yourself and worship yourself or to worship creation instead of worshiping the one who gave, right? Because true intimacy is giving, not taking. You're focused on giving and meeting the needs of the other party instead of getting what you want right? Wanting someone who looks this way or getting this or getting that. It's all self-focused. It's a distortion of what true worship was meant to be. Um, So I remember that there was a time in my experience where I used to be afraid of heaven. And I'm kind of ashamed to admit that now, but I was literally afraid of heaven because I thought to myself, like, that's a really long time. I was scared of that. Because I did not understand what was available to me. I knew that, you know, like God is love and heaven's a good place and stuff. But I just thought like I could not envision being happy, being in a location like that for that length of a period of time. And it scared me to think about heaven. Literally scared me. But once I came to understand the true love of God for me, and I fell head over heels in love with Jesus, it changed my entire worldview right? Like literally, it drives me mad when I hear conversations now in Sabbath school or other places, and they aren't bad people for asking these questions or having these conversations. I just fear that the point of heaven is being missed. When we say like, I wonder what it's going to look like. I can't wait to see other worlds and, and eating from the tree of life and planting my own garden. And like, yeah, that's great. But like literally, I'll, I'll, I don't, have I told you guys a story about the Mormon kid? Okay, this is a perfect time for it. So I was at Arise, we had a class on Mormons and J-dubs just to kind of understand what they believe and how they operate and how to engage with them. And so in this class, David Asherick is telling this story, and I can't remember if Dave was studying with this kid or somebody else was, but someone was studying with this Mormon young adult. And it's kind of blowing his mind, the things he's learning about Jesus, because they're giving him really Christ-centered Bible studies. And so this kid goes to the Mormon church on Sunday to a normal church service. As he's studying with with an Adventist, you know, he's still going to church as he normally would. And they have a testimony service. You think, oh, that's exciting. And they form a line around the entire church. You know when you do like, you you, you make that circle around the church and hold hands and sing side by side, whatever. It's kind of like that, except they're making this long line roped around the church. And the first person walks up to the platform and says, I believe the Mormon church is God's church and that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And they step down. And then the next person walks up. They give their testimony. I believe the Mormon church is God's church and that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And they step down. And this goes on for like 45 people. And this guy's just like beside himself. He's frustrated. And so his turn comes and he goes up to the platform and he says, People, what about Jesus? And everyone just stares at him like. And and I feel that way when I hear these types of conversations, because we're talking about everything that we're going to see and do. And no one is talking about Jesus. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus. Literally, you can bow down at his feet, wrap your arms around his legs, and you never have to let him go. You never have to wonder if I'm good enough. You never have to wonder if I'm going to lose access to him or if I'm going to disappoint him or hurt him. Like literally, you can just enjoy being in the presence of your beloved. This is what makes heaven heaven. And this is where true worship should be found. If you're just thinking about stuff and you are not thinking about Jesus in regards to heaven, you do not understand what's available to you. And I'm not saying that these aren't going to be things that we're going to enjoy. You will not be bored in heaven. I guarantee you, you're not going to be disappointed. Will we be married in heaven? Will my dog be there? At the end of the day, whatever's going to happen there is not going to disappoint you. It will be filled with pleasure and delight. Did you know that the word Eden means pleasure? 
God wired you for pleasure, and you will experience the full freedom of engaging in pleasure in a way that will not bring shame or, or fear or anything. Like, you will be able to fully enjoy unbridled pleasure in heaven. A limitless supply, right? So don't worry about that. But if you don't understand why you're there and what makes heaven heaven, what's the point, guys? So true worship is birthed out of this understanding. Like you're going to, so when you hear in the book of Revelation, I'll come to your point or your question, when you hear in Revelation, the angels worship God all day, for some of us who may think like, that sounds kind of boring. Like, why would you want to do that? Like, don't you like get up and eat or at least go for a walk or something? Like, when you understand who he is, all you want to do is think about him and enjoy him and receive from him and give back to him. This is what is meant to happen. Does that make sense? That's what our experience is supposed to be. Bogdan. No, it's true. And like, it's like dirt there. We're like, I can't wait to see the streets of gold. And like, literally, who says I can't wait to see grass? Who does that? Like, I mean, except for when it's winter. But um, yeah, it's just very interesting. Uh, let's go to Revelation chapter 7. We'll, we'll kind of close out here. Again, these are just kind of abstract thoughts. I've not taken time to fully like work through all this, but hopefully there are some least helpful principles. Revelation chapter 7, and we'll begin at verse 12. Uh, So this is, uh, we'll go to verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. There's this theme that happens in the book of Revelation, that God will hear something and then he'll see something. Um, So he heard 144,000, but now he sees a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before God, and what did they do? They worshiped him, saying, Amen, blessing, glory, and wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. When one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before... That is so interesting. Therefore they are before... That's hard. Um, Anyway, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. And they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. And the sun shall not strike them nor the heat. Right? So this is kind of this beautiful picture that everyone is, is engaging in this worship because of God manifesting who he really is. Yeah, I don't know where what that is or where that's coming from. But it's unpleasant. Um, that, that smell, I don't know what that is. They're fertilizing the fields, I think. Um, I was like, I was wondering if the, it was Buddy's fault. I was checking my shoes um, while I was teaching. I was like, but I wasn't going to say anything. It's like, maybe, so they're fertilizing the fields, and that's what it is. It's just the fields. All right, anyway, back to your regularly scheduled program. All right. Uh, let's look at a few more texts here about worship, and then we're done, because we've got just like three more. Go to Revelation 4.11. Wow. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. We read this earlier. That the Father is worthy uh, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist. Okay? It says, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So speaking about the Father here. Um, and then we get to Revelation 5 and verse 9. And they fall before Jesus because no one was worthy to open the scroll. And they fall before Jesus and say, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And um, which is really interesting. And then in verse 12, it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. They keep talking about the worthiness of Jesus and of the Father to receive worship. And then Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, we read these texts already that um, how Jesus had to be made like us and to suffer like us 
to be able to comfort us in our times of difficulty, to minister us whenever we're tempted. And then in Hebrews 4, it says that seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not, uh, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then it says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Right? What leads us to worship God is all of what He's done in condescending to send His Son for Jesus to become a man, to suffer like us, to die for us, to redeem us, for Him to lavish us with His gifts, with His blessings. This is what leads people to have a reciprocating response of heartfelt, genuine worship and gratitude. Yeah? So I think this is what's being called for in the three angels' messages is this kind of understanding. Where there's so much more. I really don't know what I'm talking about. I have some random thoughts and a note on my iPhone. But um, hopefully this is kind of helpful to at least kind of whet your appetite that worship is bigger than we think, right? Like that worship, there's more to worship than maybe we realized because there's different forms of worship, individual experiences, family worship, there's corporate worship. There's things that we engage in that actually bring pleasure to us and benefit us that are also worship, right? Eating, seeing the things of nature, family, marriage, what leads to having children, right? All of that. And I think when we better understand these things, we can better understand how to be in a frame and a mindset of worship that would be honoring and pleasing to God. Because you can't call the world to worship God and not really explain what that looks like, right? And some, some elements of that. So, um, Anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's what I've got for it, at least on my end. Any other thoughts or questions on this um, before we kind of close out this, this segment? This is actually what it means to abide in Christ. And we'll have a class on that with Dale Lehman second semester. Learning to bring God into every aspect of your day. What, is, what are you doing and why are you doing it? I'll figure that out later. Um, this is, this is part of what it means to abide in Christ, right? To be continually bringing Him into your thoughts, into your decisions, that you can commune with Him throughout the course of the day. Your life gets better when you do this. Seriously, like the things that depress and dishearten and discourage you and, and like bring you down and you're just like bumming the whole day, you don't have to bum the whole day. Like bad things can happen. You can bring them to Jesus. You can work through those things and surrender them to Him. And you can find ways to be thankful and to worship and to have gratitude in your heart even in those moments, right? Job even did that, right? Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I'll return. Literally, it says he's struck with boils and his first instinct is to worship God. Is that your first instinct when bad things happen? Generally not, right? It's to complain to God. And I'm not saying that God delights in suffering either, but I'm just saying that it's, it's through our sufferings that we realize our need of God, right? Many times it's kind of what brings us back to God uh, when we've lost sight of Him. We left Him, you know, um, and we find ourselves in difficult straits. Things can happen. Not that any suffering is because you left Him. You understand what I mean. But we can go through these processes where, like, we lost sight of the fact that He can be with us even in the midst of our trials, um, and He's accessible. Like, God is literally that available. You can worship Him whenever you want. You don't have to wait until 7.45 in the morning, Monday through Thursday. You don't have to wait until Sabbath morning. You can worship God whenever you want. Now, His day of worship is only Sabbath, but you can engage in worship at any point in time. And I think this is something that our people really don't understand or appreciate, or we'd probably be doing life a little differently at this stage. Right? Most of the saints are mean mugging through life when God desires to bless them beyond their wildest dreams. And the greatest blessing is receiving Him, not the stuff that you wish you had. When you focus on receiving Him, with Him comes everything else that you need. You're just so thankful to have Him, it's safe to give you other stuff because you won't make idols out of those things because He's the true desire of your heart. Right? Anyone else? Yes, ma'am. Do I know the what? The etymology. Etymology is delicious. I love it. <laughs> yeah, so um, at least in English, I looked up the etymology for the word worship, and it's, it comes from the old, uh, English for worth and ship as a relationship. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's, I, I find that to be not just fascinating, but, like, really 
um, awesome because, like as you were saying, true worship is birthed out of your own experience, um, mm -hmm. and therefore relationship with God. In that relationship, you deem Him to be worthy, the most worthy. Mm -hmm. And we were created to worship. Like the thing that you think about most, you end up worshiping. I heard. So, if we're not going to worship God, we're going to end up worship, worshiping something else. And That's exactly right. That's a great closing point. Like, we literally are wired for worship, and we worship all the time, whether we appreciate that or not. In fact, Timothy Keller has a statement on this. I just put something out this about the other day. It was a, a memory that posted up. Yeah, you're going to worship no matter what. Right. That's right. This is Timothy Keller. He says, The human heart is an idol factory. It takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think that they can give us significance, security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. Right? And so we, we have that tendency. Tim Keller's got some amazing stuff on idolatry. It's really, really, really good. Sasha. Why is he calling on me? Wait a minute. No, I did raise my hand. You're right. Yeah, I was basically just thinking, like, at a grand thing overall about the classes and, and so on. I really like your emphasis. Like, I noticed, I'm just noticing overall your the, your method of teaching and the difference with all the traditional, most of the other traditional Adventists I really listen to. I I really really appreciate this method. It's kind of different. Most of what I've heard is just like keeping the law, following the commandments, um, getting this and all these things out of your life. This is important, but I, I feel like you cannot do those things without the emphasis of what you're making. Hmm. So, yeah. Oh, praise God. Yeah. yeah, it's, again, we focus more on the math, which the math is true, but if we don't communicate the how, we have a bunch of people who are discouraged, who are falling, and who are filled with shame and condemnation, and they can't even finish the work. And so it's this idea of the Pharisees that you're, you're loading, lo, you know, putting these massive loads on men's shoulders, but you're not lifting a finger to help them. But you think that you've done God's work because you told people what God expected. But your job doesn't stop there. Yes, you do need to tell people what God expects. I've never downplayed that. But you also need to show people that God is reasonable. And God, first of all, reveals who He is before He asks what He asks. And then he enables us to do what he asks. And that process, I think, is largely lost sight of um, with the best of intentions, but it's lost sight of. And I think it's one of the reasons why our people aren't succeeding um, and why they get discouraged and why they just leave. Like, this clearly isn't working. Because what I've found is if all we focus is on the end goal or the expectation, but we don't communicate how to get to that expectation, or how God views us as we're striving for that expectation, it generally leads to two responses. Maybe there's more, but at least two. The first is I'm a loser and I'm not good enough. And so I'll quit, right? Because I clearly can't meet that measure, so I'm just going to dip out. This is too hard. But the other response is that God is unreasonable. Why would God ask things of me that He knows good and well that I can't do? And so people leave for that too. So we did the will of God in communicating what God expected, but we did not do the will of God in communicating how to get there, how God has enabled us to succeed in it, and how God views us as we're seeking to get there. And because of this, we have not fully done the will of God. We've partially done the will of God. And then we wonder why people are leaving. Well, it is carnal. You know, they just watch too many movies. They just spend too much time on the internet, so they're not really converted anyway, or whatever. We blame everybody but ourselves. So as you get in roles of leadership when you leave here, as Sabbath school teachers, as preachers, as ministers, as Bible workers, as eventual spouses and parents, when you are discipling and teaching people, you need to give them all three prongs. Yes, communicate what God expects, but communicate how to get there. They talk about this with rules, right? Don't just give a what, give a why. 
people are more inclined to go along with the what if they know the why, not just because I said so. We're basically saying, God said so. Don't question it. That's not how people think. God, He literally designed people to be inquisitive, to be rational beings, not just obedient robots. So the message that God gives should also appeal to the logic-driven brain, that there is something that God asks, and yes, though my flesh hates it, it does make sense why this is to my benefit, so I will choose to do what God says in spite of what my flesh feels, and because I know who He is and how He views me as I'm striving for that. When you do this, you're more inclined to get a successful response. Jesus didn't have a 100% success rate. Even Jesus didn't. But you'll be more inclined to succeed if you do it this way. So you take, so it's, it's like you, you need to do the former things without leaving the latter things undone, as Jesus says. And I think that's the balance that Adventism, I believe that's what the 1888 message was meant to do. And that's the balance that Adventism needs to fully reach its potential to finally and truly and fully worship as God made us to. Ages has been the book that has inspired me the most. It's taught me because it's like I feel like you, the standards, you, you, without the grace of God working in you, you cannot attain to those standards. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I don't know, the desire of Ages, Jesus comes alive to me, and I don't know, I can't explain it, and it becomes easier to walk. Yeah. So, yeah. It's no longer a burden, right? John says in 1 John that his commandments are not burdensome. And you think, like, what a jerk. How could you say that? You know, like, sure seems hard to me at certain times in our experience. But then you recognize when you truly know who God is, you're more than willing to do what he asks. Because you know how he feels about you, what he wants to do for you, and what the end goal will be. And I'm, I'm fully convinced that when we truly know who God is, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt and the things that we don't understand. So when God asks us to do things and we don't understand why, we're still going to do it because we know him. That's why Abraham did what he did in Genesis 22. He was a friend of God, we're told. His friend asked him to do something that didn't make any sense. But he knew his friend well enough to know that if I go where he's leading, he will care for me in this. Even though I feel that he's nowhere to be found as I'm wrestling with this weight, I'm still going. And he viewed that act as an act of worship. And I think there's a relevant lesson for us in that, yeah? Anybody else? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for giving us uh, some thoughts on worship, and I pray that you continue to grow our understanding. I feel like I barely understand this, but I pray that you would continue to grow our understanding and that you would help us to become more like you uh, and how to worship you in a way that is uh, acceptable and pleasing and delightful. Teach us how to find that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.